0: Today I would like for you to open your Bibles to two places. First place, Luke chapter 16, and then turn over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We'll be reading the first five verses, however, I will only be focusing on the first three. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 9, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. Looking at verses 4 and 5, Paul is identifying who it is that he's talking to. He's talking about those who he would give his life gladly for. And that is for his kinsmen. Who are his kinsmen? Verse 4 and 5 say they are the Israelites. They are the Jews. And then he details the identity of a jew he details the things that the lord has put into the responsibility of a jew the israelites to whom pertain the adoption the glory the covenants and the giving of the law the service of god and the promises of whom are the fathers they come from the hebrews or the jews Synonymous terms, one Old Testament, one New Testament. Hebrews is in the Old Testament. Jewish is in the New. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, what is it that Paul is dealing with here? What is he saying? In verse 1, he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Paul is using this statement, much like Jesus would say, Verily, verily, I say to you. When Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say to you, he is saying, Listen, listen, I say to you. He says it also when he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And so here's the thing. When Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, he's saying, Listen up. Pay attention to the words that I'm about to say because they are light and they are life. Paul is saying much of the same thing here. He's beginning his statement. The statement that he is going to make right here is such a weighty statement that he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. In fact, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to listen to the words that I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say, I have thought through very carefully before I put pen to paper, ink to parchment. I thought through this. I'm not just randomly putting words down on a page. I'm not flippantly putting words down on a page. I'm telling you that this is the attitude of my heart. This is the thing that I feel right now. And I want you to understand the gravity of what it is that I'm about to say. I want you to understand what Paul's doing as he's exposing the layers of his heart. And he's opening up his heart in such a way as to show you and I, show those in the Roman church, what it is that is going on deep in his heart. I want you to understand what makes me tick. If you ever wanted to know what made the Apostle Paul tick, He's saying, right now, I tell you the truth. I'm not lying. Here, my conscience bearing witness, uh, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand, here is why I do what I do. Here's what is going on in my heart. This is what, if you want to see deep inside my heart, the Apostle Paul, this is what makes me tick. He says, this is what goes on in my mind. This is what goes on in my soul. This is what's going on in my, in my heart. At all times, this is what's going on. What is he saying? I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Now, Paul is saying, I have something in my heart. It's going on in my heart. I have sorrow. Yes, I have sorrow. It's not just sorrow. He says, I have great sorrow. I have great sorrow. I have continual grief. The word sorrow in the Greek is L-Y-P-E. Lupe. Lupe. Literally means a downcast look of expressive sorrow. Distress. Anguish. Lamentation. Weariness. Pain. Torment. Trouble. Affliction. Affliction. He says, I have great expressive sorrow. I have great distress. I have great anguish. I have great lamentation, great weariness, great pain and torment, great trouble and great affliction. And it's not just a passing thing. It's not something that just happens every once in a while. He goes on to say, and I have continual grief in my heart. The word grief in the Greek is odine, odine, O-D-Y-N-E in the Greek, and it's odine, odine. And that literally means sorrow or mourning, affliction, suffering, pressure, and anguish. What is he saying? He's saying, I have great anguish in my heart. And it's not something that just happens momentarily, sporadically. This is something that happens continually in my heart. This is what I live with. You want to know what's going on in my heart, the Apostle Paul? This is something that I live with every single day of my life. This is something that I have that is going on in my heart at all times. When you see me smile, there's something deep inside of my heart that is deeper than the smile that you see on my face. You see that I have great sorrow and continual grief. It doesn't stop. When I wake up in the morning, I have great sorrow and I have continual grief. When I go to sleep at night, the thing that I dream about, the thing that that I go to sleep with is that I have great sorrow and I have continual grief. It's something that goes on and on and on and on. These two words, great sorrow and continual grief, paint a picture for us today. This type of sorrow and grief... Is where one has lost all hope. Paul, he's saying, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I have this hopelessness. I have this? I have this? I have this hopelessness that that they're not listening. Who isn't listening? You remember going back into verses four and five. He's talking about the Israelites. They're not listening. They're not listening. They're not hearing. They're not paying attention. They're not being saved. They don't know who Christ is. He said, listen, I could wish myself were accursed from Christ for my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's saying, I have this grief, this sorrow in my heart. And my hope is dashed because they're not listening. But it doesn't negate and it doesn't uh, lessen or minimize this pain that I have in my heart for them. This is the type of sorrow and grief when there's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to turn. This is the type of a sorrow that when you stand at the grave site of a loved one, you experience this deep, dull pain. This deep, dull sorrow. This continual grief that you think, I will never be able to get over the pain that I'm feeling right now. I remember it was a few years back, quite a few years back, that I remember standing at a a funeral service, that, unlike any funeral service that I had ever been a part of up until that point. It was for a a child, a, a young man, 18, 19 years old, who had been taken tragically and graphically in an accident suddenly and it it devastated a community it devastated a family and with the many that were there in attendance at that funeral service the tears and the sniffling and the and the weeping that was throughout that sanctuary was was great there was a great heaviness there was a great sorrow There was a great grief in that sanctuary. But as we made our way out to the graveside, the mother and the father and and the siblings, they sat in front of this open hole in the ground as the rest of us, the multitude of mourners, we gathered around that hole. After a few words from a pastor and maybe a, a couple of other people, the casket was slowly lowered into the ground. And then very soon after, the lowering mechanism, the straps and the lowering mechanism was removed from the casket and taken out of the way. And then, what I had never been a part of before, struck me deep. The pastor then walked over To the family. And took a shovel. And handed it. To each of the family members. It's like five or six. Seven different shovels out there. And he handed one to each family member. Beginning with the father. And then the mother. And then each of the siblings. Beginning with the father. A spade of dirt. Is lifted and dropped into the hole to cover the casket of their beloved one. One by one, friends and then extended family members and even just simple broken hearted sympathizers who had come to support the family in their deep grief and their community. They lined up and they each took turns with a shovel to help bury this one who was just a few days before so full of life. I recall that with each thud of a packed spade of earth dropping upon the lid of that casket and then one upon another, I'll never forget the sorrow from that father. I'm sure that the rest of the family felt the same, but being a father myself, I was vicariously living this enduring and deep sorrow of this man, who rightly so, this sorrow that hung over a blanket hung like a blanket over all of us that were there to witness and to say goodbye to this life that had been taken far too soon. That's a deep sorrow. That is a sorrow that I will never forget. That is a sorrow that was so deep. And I I paint the picture not to uh, trivialize the loss of a son, but to describe what true sorrow is. And that this is the word that Paul is using for the sorrow that he has in his heart. It's a deep sorrow. It's a deep grief. It's a deep grief that there's nothing else that he can do. He can't make any effectual change in the circumstance that is before him. He can't change a mind. He can't make someone want Christ. He can't make someone want to know that there is a way to eternal life and it's through Jesus Christ. There's no way that he can make someone believe that. And so he has this deep, deep grief. This is the sorrow and grief that Paul says that he has for his kinmen, his countrymen, his people. There are two others mentioned in the Bible who had such deep sorrow for the people. Because of the state that they found themselves in, I think of Moses back in chapter thirty two of Exodus. you don't have to turn there, you can jot the note down, look it up later, but you remember the situation Moses painting the the the, the picture Moses he goes up on Mount Sinai in order to to uh, receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and you remember that as he was up there for quite a few many days he is he, he ended up coming back down the mountain. The people because Moses had delayed his coming back down the mountain. They began to get restless and they began to say uh, it's been many days that Moses has been gone. And so therefore because he's been gone so long maybe he's not alive anymore. Maybe he's died. Maybe he's abandoned us whatever it is. But but what are we going to do if Moses isn't going to lead us who will lead us. We need a God in order to worship. It's been far too long for us to worship God. And so we need to worship a God. And so what they did is that they begin to convince Aaron, the brother of Moses, to make and fashion a golden calf. So that they have something for, to, to have as an object of worship as their God. And so Aaron, he, uh, he uh, allows, he, he bows to the pressure of the multitude... And he fashions this golden calf and they begin to play the harlot with this golden calf and it angers the Lord. And the Lord tells Moses to get down from the mountain because his people are playing the harlot with false gods. And he says, I'm going to destroy these people. And I'm just going to make out of you, Moses, a, a great nation. That's what I'll do. I'll just destroy all those people down there. But it said there in Exodus chapter 32, verse 31 and 32, Then Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Oh, these people, God, they've committed a great sin and, and have made for themselves a God of gold yet now. If you will forgive their sin, well then fine, Lord, forgive their sin. But if not, I pray Than blot my own name out of your book which you have written. Moses is saying, I would rather not have a great nation made out of my lineage, out of my loins, out of my bloodline. I would rather it be from the people of Israel that you have delivered out of Egypt. And so here's the thing, God, if you're not going to deliver them, then don't deliver me either. I could wish myself accursed. He says the same thing basically. Blot me out of your book which you have written. Jesus also had this great sorrow in his heart. You remember as he was coming down upon the Mount of Olives and overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And he saw that they had abandoned him time after time after time, knowing that uh, that He's not going to overpower the will of the people. He's not going to make them believe something that they themselves do not want to believe. And in agony and in grief and in, and in tears, he stops short of, of walking up the uh, uh, Temple Mount as he overlooks the city on the Mount of Olives and he looks o- over the city and he says, "Oh Jerusalem, as he weeps, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Deep sorrow, deep grief, that the people are not listening, that the people are not willing. And yet, as Paul and as Moses have both said, I could wish myself a curse, I could wish myself to be blotted out. Jesus actually did it. He said, I will take their sin upon me, and I will die in their place, and I will go and do something that they themselves cannot do. For you see, Moses could not be blotted out, nor could Paul be blotted out of the book of life. Paul already talked about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You remember, we spent many weeks in Romans chapter 1. He says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I can't lose my salvation. I can't forfeit my salvation. I can't get rid of my salvation. God, you saved me. It was in you that I was saved. And it's you that I will be uh, uh, held securely, fit for heaven because of you. I can't willingly say I'm going to give up my salvation in order for someone else to live. Can't do that. But Jesus, he went to the cross. But here's the thing. Paul and Moses says, I could wish that you blot my name out. I could wish that you, God, would accursed my soul so that my countrymen could be saved. Both Paul and Moses had the same heart. It's this type of sorrow and grief where where you struggle to make a sense of it all. You remember that Paul says, I could wish myself accursed. You remember that Moses says, blot me out of your book. What possibly could that mean? Really, what possibly could that mean? Think about it to be blotted out, to be accursed from God. Well, I had you turn to Luke chapter 16. Would you turn left with me for just a few seconds and we're going to look at something. I'm going to read very quickly a passage in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to look at Luke chapter 16 for just a second. We're going to read a parable that is probably familiar to many of you. Beginning in verse 19 through 31, I'm going to read it and then I will come back and make a couple of comments on it. For context, so that we can understand the rest of my passage, the rest of my message. Please bear with me and let's read together the context of this story. Jesus was speaking. He says this. There was a certain man, a certain rich man, who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Well, the rich man also died and he was buried. And being in torments, who being in torments? Lazarus, no, he was in Abraham's bosom. We're talking about the rich man right now. He was in torments, being in torments, verse 23, in Hades. The rich man, he lifted his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are now tormented. And besides all this, Abraham continued, he says, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you, which I never would understand why anyone would want to pass from Abraham's bosom or paradise to a place of torment. It doesn't make sense. But uh, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. I suppose that it would be those who might have a merciful heart to help those that are over there in torment to be able to try to cross that gulf. They, they can't do that, to go over and, and add some sense of relief to those who were in obvious pain and in obvious suffering and obvious anguish. The rich man, verse 27, he cried out back to uh, Abraham. He says, it says, verse 27, then he said, I beg you. Therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment, as I have come. Abraham said to him, verse 29, They have Moses, and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham said, But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. The reason I read this passage was that there are those that would like to explain away hell, explain away the death of the wicked, to explain away the death of a sinner. Who has no relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who die apart from Jesus Christ, it's a painful thought to consider that they would be lost for all eternity. In fact, so much so that many have gone to great lengths and great pains to try to explain away hell. To say that hell is, is basically a place of imagination, that play that hell is basically a A a, a place that doesn't exist. God would never allow it. For we in our own minds. We would say. A God of justice. Or a God of goodness. A God of love. Would never. Never allow someone to suffer eternally. No. What gain would that be? Surely he would just let them suffer through this life. And once they die. They simply cease to exist. We call those people, those who believe in annihilation. Annihilation means that you basically cease to exist when you die. That if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you just cease to exist and you do not get the fruit of heaven. For you see, it's, it's more palatable to even teachers that claim to be Christians... Standing up behind pulpits and saying, there really is no hell, I don't want to frighten anybody, I don't want anybody to think. In their own mind, they justify the God that they serve, saying, there's no way that he would ever allow such suffering. No, not my God, here's what he would do, he would just simply take their consciousness away. Well, I, I want you to understand that Jesus didn't believe, nor did he teach, that hell was a place where people just were annihilated and they didn't exist any longer, they just ceased to exist. In fact, in these few short verses here found in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives a description of what happens in the life, the eternal life, the eternal death, more appropriately, of those who reject him and go to hell. In fact, there are eight things that I see and there's more that here, but I could I'm just pointing out eight things that we can find in our passage here in Luke chapter 16. Of the things that they do in hell. The things that they have in hell. The things that goes on in hell. To those. Who are there because they have rejected Christ. And as I go through this. I want you to consider your own life. If you're here and if you're listening to this. And you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you're banking on God just saving your soul. And that you're going to be able to go to heaven. Because you're a good person quote unquote. Good person. person. There are no good people. In fact, Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. He says, there is none good, no, not one. Nobody's good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the reason that Jesus Christ went to the cross. He didn't go to the cross simply to provide a way. He went to the cross to provide the only way. Jesus says in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. He didn't go to the cross simply to provide a way. It was the only way. It's the only hope for salvation. It's the only hope for eternal life. And so if you're here listening to what it is that I'm saying right now, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you, you have uh, softened your mind... Uh, you have you have uh, justified in your mind that if these Christians are true, if the Bible is true, if what these literalists of the Word of God say are true, that hell is a place, well, you've softened the tone to think that, well, I probably won't go there because God is a God of love, no. He's already told you there's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. It's the reason he hung on a cross. If you choose not to accept that, you've chosen to reject the gift that God has given to you. The free gift. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you're lost. You've forfeited the gift, you've abandoned the gift. You've rejected the gift that God has laid before you. And you have placed it upon your own shoulders. You've placed it upon your own life to figure it out on your own. Thinking that it will all turn out okay in the end. And here's the thing. It will not turn out okay in the end. In fact, this is your fate if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to identify with a rich man. For those that are in hell, those who have no relationship with Jesus Christ, this is their future, the rich man, described in this story. There are eight things that we can see here in this passage that they do in hell. That those who are suffering the eternal torment in hell, this is what they are doing. Number one. It says the beggar died in verse twenty two, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosoms and the, to bosom, and, and then the rich man also died, and he was buried. And the rich man being in torments in Hades there is punishment and there is torture for those who have rejected God. Jesus doesn't make an excuse for it. He doesn't explain it away. He doesn't make uh, a, 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 a long, drawn-out description of what's going on. He's just saying, this is the fact. This is what's going to happen. The rich man's soul was in torments. He was in torments in Hades, and he lifted up his eyes. Do you know what I see there? I see that, that the rich man has a conscience. He's conscious in heaven. He's conscious in heaven, there is or I'm, I'm sorry, in hell. he's conscious in hell. He realizes that he's alive, though he's dead. He has a conscience. Number two, he saw Abraham afar off, that he recognized that that was Abraham tells me this. In hell, those who are residing in hell, they have the ability to recognize people. They have the ability to recognize one another. You won't, your mind won't be blanked. Your mind won't be you know, forfeited. You're going to remember. You're going to recognize. Number three, he saw Abraham afar off in Lazarus' bosom. Verse 24, and then he cried. He cried and he said, Father Abraham, in tears, he was crying. The third thing I see is a characterization of those that are in hell, that are residing in hell, is that they have emotion. They have the ability to feel. They have the ability to be disturbed. They have the ability... Have emotion. Number four, he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. And so what Abraham says, he asks the rich man to do one thing. He says, I want you to remember. And so here's the thing. A message such as you're hearing right now, you'll remember in hell if you do not have a relationship with Christ. In hell, they remember. Abraham would not say, hey, remember, son, if he had no capacity to remember. In hell... One of the most powerful things that will happen in the mind, I truly believe, of those who will be residing for an eternity in hell is that they will always remember. They will remember every single opportunity that God tried to reach out and save their souls, and yet they rejected time after time after time. And every time they rejected, I believe they're going to remember. God's going to bring back to remembrance how they rejected. Number five. Verse 26, it says, And besides all this, Abraham says, Between us and you there's a great gulf fixed. We can't pass to you, you can't pass to us. Verse 27, then the rich man said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. The word beg there is a word that can also be translated pray. I pray. I beg. I plead. Know this. The fifth thing that I see that they do in hell is that they pray. They beg. They plead. The problem is, as though they are prayer warriors, in hell their, their words are not heard. They are not realized. They are never answered. I beg you, I pray. In hell they pray, but their prayers go unheard. Their prayers go unanswered. Today on earth, every prayer that we lift up before the Lord <clears throat> is answered. could be yes, it could be no, it could be maybe, could be not now <clears throat> it could be later. but every every prayer is answered here on earth it is heard and it is answered but in hell. Your prayer is not heard. It's not answered. It's not answered. Number six. He says, I beg you therefore, my father, that you would send him to my... I beg you therefore, Abraham, father, that you would send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. He understands his hopeless condition of being in a place of torment. And that there is no hope for him. But what does he want to do? He says, I want someone to go back and testify to them. What is testify? Testify as a witness. Guess what they are in, in hell. If you are going to hell, this is what you will be. You will be one of the greatest evangelists of all times. They are evangelical in hell. They are witnessing machines in hell. They know the truth and want everyone to know the truth. They're passionate for the lost and the dying. This one is. He was passionate for the lost and dying. For five of his brothers. He has five brothers. I don't want them to experience what I'm experiencing. Please go back and witness to them. Please go back and share with them what it is that I rejected. They're evangelical in hell. Number seven. Abraham said to them in verse 28 listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let your brothers hear them. And it's almost as if, verse 30, it's almost as if the words didn't even completely get out of Abraham's mouth before the rich man interrupted. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The seventh thing that I see that they do in hell is it. They have a sense of urgency. They have a sense of urgency to know Christ. They have a sense of urgency to to make a decision for Christ before it's too late. They have a sense of urgency to go out and tell people that they must know who Jesus Christ is lest they come to this place of torments that he finds himself in. And number eight, beginning in verse 31, Abraham Responded to the man, If they do not hear Moses nor the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Think about it. He's talking about you right now if you don't have a relationship with Christ. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You might sit there and there are those in hell right now that are sitting there saying, if only someone were to rise from the dead, then, then my loved one would believe. And here you stand, here you sit, here you listen, here you are driving in your car, here you are sitting at work listening to this message. You, you probably should be working, but here you are doing whatever you are doing on a Saturday afternoon. Here you are, sitting amongst your family, listening to this message. Here you are in this room, listening to this message, and you have this stoic look upon your face, saying, I will not believe. And those in hell are saying, man, if only someone were to rise from the dead, he would believe. And here we have just testified last week, and we just celebrated last week, Easter. Jesus rose from the dead, and yet you remain hardened. You have fulfilled the prophecy. You have fulfilled what Abraham has said. If you don't hear Moses and you don't hear the prophets, neither will you be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You know the eighth thing that I see that they do in hell or that they have in hell is that they have hopelessness. They experience true hopelessness. All hope is gone forever. There is no escape. There is no recourse. There is no hope. For a change of geography. There is no hope for salvation. There is no hope for life. They are eternally dead. And when I mean eternally dead. Is that there is no hope. They are separated from God. They don't have the light and the love. And the glory of God. They are sitting there. In torments. I don't know if you've ever experienced. A torment in your life. But I believe that that day that that father buried his son there was a great sorrow and a great torment on that day i believe that those who have been injured greatly maybe have been burned greatly you experience this incredible pain this tormenting pain maybe you've had something on the inside of you an illness that a disease or an operation or some op, some disease that has required an operation <clears throat> And you've experienced this incredible pain. And you can't get rid of the pain. There's nothing that can that can be taken in order to alleviate this pain. And you suffer through this pain, that is a torment, but you know that it's just a matter of time before maybe the medicine kicks in, or maybe before the surgery takes place and and you are rid of this tormented, this torment, this pain. But know this, there is no end to this torment. Many at Three different times in here he says he is in torments in Hades. He's in torments in hell. I want you to understand hell is a place of hopelessness. Hell is a place that we run away from as fast as we can and yet there are those that they don't see the urgency of the day. You don't know. You have no guarantee that tomorrow. And that today. Your life will last until tomorrow. You have no promise or guarantee. That the next day you will be alive. And yet you still play Russian roulette. With your salvation. Thinking. Thinking that maybe you know better. When how the word of God describes it you are playing with literal fire and hell and eternal death and torment you will not cease to exist this is your eternal state every single day for the rest of eternity i want you to if, if i can scare the hell out of you right now i wish i could Because if I'm scaring the hell out of you, that means that you are removing yourself from hell by receiving the free gift of life through Jesus Christ. Now I want you to understand, hell is a very, very disastrous place. It's a very horrible place. It's a a very destructive place. It's a very uh, ugly place. It's a place that you must keep yourself from at all costs. And yet, Paul, he says that God, if it were possible, and I'm telling you all the truth in my conscience, I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. I have this great sorrow and I have this continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself would spend an eternity in hell if it meant that my countrymen's eyes would open up and that they could see Jesus Christ for who he is and that they could be saved. What gave Paul this passion? What gave Paul this drive in his life? Well, turn back to Romans chapter 9. And then you might have to turn one page or you might be able to stay on the same page because chapter 10 might be on your where your book is opened. I want us to look at chapter 10, verse 1. I know we're not there yet, but I want you to look at just this one verse. Listen to it. Brethren... My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Stop right there. Give me your attention. What did it say? What did it say? What did Paul say? He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God. Wait, stop. Brethren, brothers, sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for my countrymen. What's his passion? What is his desire? It's his prayer. What is it that he prays? It's that they may be saved. It's his prayer. As Paul says, Experience this great sorrow as Paul experiences this continual grief. Paul says, I pray without ceasing. That those who are blind would see. This dull ache in my soul. Were those that I love so much. That hate my guts. That come against the things that I say. That try to, to explain away. The resurrection of Christ. That try to explain away. What God has done in my life. They call me the Christian wacko if you will. They call me the former persecutor. Of the brethren where I used to have such a high, cush,falutin job as, as a Pharisee. I was paid well. I was highly respected in the religious community, Paul could say. And yet, I, even in the midst of that, I... Excelled above all Pharisees. In fact, I secured letters to go out and destroy these Christians that were out there that were saying that God became so weak that he allowed man to string him up on a cross and die. That's not, no, that's not a God of mine. That's not God of, of me that would allow man, his created beings, that he would submit himself and humble himself to a point where he would allow man to kill him. By stringing him up on a cross. That's not my God. And because of that passion Paul says. I'm going to go out and I'm going to kill these people who are Christians. Until God knocked him off his high horse. Jesus knocked him off his high horse. As he made his way to Damascus. To go and kill and maim and take into prison. Those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Knocked him off his high horse. And blinded Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul falls on the ground and he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responded to Jesus and he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Saul, who would later become known as Paul. He said, Saul, Saul, Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Isn't it hard for you to kick against what it is that God, me, what I'm trying to do? Don't you find it difficult to try to to come against what I am doing in the lives of mankind? You are distressed in your spirit because you're killing people all in the name of me and yet there's no pleasure and there's no contentment and there's no satisfaction and this is the reason why, because you're killing the wrong people. Not that I've called you to kill anyone, but here's what you are doing. You are fighting against me instead of for me. Isn't it hard to continue to do what you're doing when you know deep down in your gut that there's something wrong with what you're doing? And then Paul says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And Jesus says, I want you to get back up. And I want you to go into the Damascus. I want you to go to a street called Straight. And there, I'm going to leave you there for a few days. I'm going to blind you. I'm put scales on your eyes to where you can't see. And then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Once you've endured this time, I'll send someone to you. So he did. Paul got saved. Paul got saved. And from that moment on, he understood the hatred that people had for Christians. But he also understood that it was unfounded. He understood that Jesus was alive. That these Christians weren't wacko after all. These Christians weren't misled after all. These Christians weren't weak after all. But he understood for the first time in his life that God humbled himself and died on a cross at the hands of his created beings, mankind. Because he had to do something for them that they could not do for themselves and that was to pay for their own sin. For you see, the Bible says that the shedding of, well, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And so know this. Paul began to understand for the very first time in his life. This is an unbelievable story. This is an unreal story. This is a magnificent story. Man could not save himself. And so God became a man in Jesus Christ. And he allowed himself to be humbled and murdered to become a sacrifice for all of mankind. For he was the sinful lamb of God who was sacrificed for me. For the first time in Paul's life he understood. I can have salvation. I can have peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. How about you? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or do you just hang on religion? I go to church. I pray when they tell me to pray at church because we pray together. I don't really read my Bible all that much. I don't don't actually like it. I don't really, there's nothing really in it for me. Oh, if you only understood that this Bible, these 66 love letters that God has written to you, are full of incredible insight, incredible words. Incredible life and light to brighten and illuminate this dark path that we walk on in this world. Maybe you're here today or you're listening today and you don't have a relationship with Christ. Know this. God has brought you to this moment. God has allowed you to hear something a little bit about hell today. That was not an exhaustive discussion on hell by any stretch of the imagination, but just what little you have heard about hell, one thing you do know is that you don't want to go there. And maybe like Paul, for the very first time in your life, you've been knocked off your high horse and you understand for the very first time that God loves you and that he only made one way to heaven and it was through him. His Son, Jesus Christ, being hung on a cross and rising again from the third day. Maybe for the very first time you finally understand. If you want to receive Christ, I want you to just open up your heart to Him right now. Call out to Him. Call out to Him with the urgency and the fervency Of the rich man that was in hell. No I must have salvation. God please save my soul. God I'm a sinner. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to reject you any longer. I want salvation. I want to have a relationship with you. I want my sins to be cleansed. God I'm a sinner. You know it. I know it. We all know it. There's nothing. Before you that I have done that is hidden from you, God, I am lost apart from you. I, I must have you. I receive you into my heart as my Lord, as my Savior. God, you did become a man in the man Jesus Christ in your Son. You died in my place on that cross and you rose again three days later, something I never would have ever been able to do. God, you did that for me. You did that for my sin. You did that for my eternal heavenly life. And God, today I receive it. I am not going to reject it one more day. Today I receive it. Come into my heart as my Lord, my Savior, my God, my King. I want to be a Christian from this day forward. I repent, I confess, and I receive you. From this day forward, God, help me to walk in you. Help me to follow you all the rest of my days. God, help my life to matter for you. God, help me to share with others what it is that I finally have understood today. And may they come to the same conclusion that I have today. That they need you. For the rest of everyone, as we remain in this attitude of prayer, I want you to think about what we've talked about here today. Why did Paul have a passion for the people? We read it there in Romans chapter 10 verse 1, didn't we? He said he had a desire because he prayed. For their salvation. I want to ask. Each of. You Christians that are listening. To this message right now. It's going to be a very uncomfortable. Question that I'm going to ask you. Let me ask you something. When was the last time. You cried out. For someone's soul. That God would save their soul. Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. A mother or a father or a best friend. An acquaintance. Somebody you like as a great friend. Whoever it may be. A distant family member. When was the last time you cried out to God for their soul? For their salvation? With the passion and the urgency and the, the fervency of this rich man crying out from hell. He's as uncomfortable as it is to say this. To think that a man in hell would cry out for someone's salvation with more sense of urgency and fervency. And, 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 and this, this guttural reaction that he has that they must hear, they must know, I must do everything that that I can do in my power, in my ability, that they would be able to understand. They don't have to go to hell, they can go to heaven. We as Christians can be very embarrassed to think that there's someone that is residing in hell that is more of an evangelist than we are. They are crying out for our loved ones more than we ever have even thought about crying out for them. There's my uncomfortable question to you. When was the last time you cried out with tears? When was the last time you cried out with a guttural response before the Lord that said, God, you've got to save these people. God, whatever it takes, God, save my loved one. God, whatever it takes, save my friend. God, whatever it takes, God, I'm calling out to you. I'm crying out to you. I I am begging you, God, for their salvation. I'm begging you for their life remove the influence of the enemy from them, that they would be able to see the light and the life of who you are, Christ. God, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I cry out for my loved one. I have great sorrow in my heart, and I will have continual grief until I see that one saved, and so until I, I see that family saved, until I see that friend saved. I will never stop praying this prayer. I will never stop feeling this great sorrow. I will never cease to have this continual grief in my heart for that one until I see that they have bowed their knee to you, God. God, make that the passion of our life from this day forward for that is what you've called us to be, to be witnesses unto you. God, help me to be that man God, help us to be those children of yours that cry out this man, in this manner. Save those, God, that we love so much. Use us. God, I know that you give us opportunity and there are many times that we shy away from it, from fear. Of what they may respond to us with. For fear that we may lack the intelligence, spiritual intelligence, to dialogue with them. But God, may we come to them spiritually, emotionally, lovingly. Share with them how much we love them and we want them to see and be saved by you. We cry out for our loved ones right now, God. And tonight before we go to sleep, we're going to cry out for them again. And tomorrow when we wake up, we're going to cry out for them again. And throughout the day, tomorrow, we're going to cry out for them as we drive down the highway, as we find a pause in our work day, as we end up going to lunch on a break or something. Lord, may we cry out for them again. May we continually grieve for them until they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let this be our prayer. Let this be our passion from this day forward, God. Make us useful and fit for the kingdom of heaven. Lord, in this manner, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.